it's pretty well known that the activities that are destroying the planet are profitable because the costs are not internalized on the balance sheet, but are externalized to future generations or to other people or the ecosystem, other species. They're the ones who are paying the price. Uh, but the company who is doing the polluting and the extracting is getting the benefits. Another way to understand it is that is that they are mining the commons, minerals underground, the topsoil that has built up over centuries, the biodiversity, all of these things were not created by human beings. They were gifts of the earth. So it's kind of unfair to seize some of them and control them and profit off something that should be a gift to all. Let's meet as if we remember. As if we remember that we all grew from love's seed. Newborn and soft, innocent as snow. Diving into this rainbow sea. From a land beyond, beyond, beyond. Let's look at each other. As if we remember that the breath within you is also within me and that you never once took a breath, not once in your life, but each and every one was given to you, that it is all given to you. My name is Matthias Olsen, and I'm the host of the Campfire podcast. Welcome to this episode with my guest Charles Eisenstein. This recording is being done in the middle of the corona pandemic. It's early May of 2020, and there seems to be more questions than answers. Is the spread of the virus beginning to slow down? Will we be back to, quote, business as usual before long? Or is this just the tip of the iceberg? Could a massive implosion of the global economy lurk just around the corner? And if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? We don't know the answers here, but my guess is that the post-corona world will offer both challenges and possibilities. If I can, I'd like to play a part in spreading seeds for a future characterized by human sanity and ecological balance. And just in case the post-corona world offers fertile ground for such seeds, here I am with the most inspiring formulator of ideas for the future that I know, Charles Eisenstein. Charles is a philosopher, a speaker, and the author of several books, including The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, and Climate, A New Story. The first one of Charles's books that I read was The Ascent of Humanity. 
In it, he asks the question, what is the underlying reason that we are where we are today? What has brought us here to the brink of ecological collapse? Looking a couple of layers beneath the left and right of politics, his answer arrives at the level of story. What is the story or myth that has informed human affairs for the past few centuries, maybe even millennia? Charles reasons that we've inhabited something that he calls the story of separation, that holds humans as something separate from nature. He further argues that that story is now close to its end and that many of us have already entered a space between stories, at least with one foot or a pinky toe, and that we're now headed towards the next chapter, one that holds us as part of nature instead of lords over nature, a chapter that he calls the story of interbeing. A quick note before we get to the show. This podcast is brought to you by the film platform Campfire Stories. If you like this episode, there's a pretty good chance you'll also like some of the films presented at Campfire Stories. For example, there's one with Charles Eisenstein. It's called An Unlearning. Check it out at campfire-stories.org. But now, back to today's episode. Thank you so much for being on the Campfire podcast. Hi, Matthias. I'm so happy to be here again. Or is it the first time? No, I've been here once before, yeah. Yeah, second time. Yeah, yeah. second time. Yeah. The, the last time was in my kitchen in Sweden. That's right. And uh, now I'd like to open by asking, first of all, how are you? But also, where are you? And how has the corona pandemic affected you personally these last few weeks? I'm at home, and I'm healthy, and my family's healthy, and... Um, my extended family is healthy, but I'm just here with my wife, Stella, and my youngest son, Carrie, who's seven. Um, it's been, I think like a lot of people, it's been a bit of a crucible. You know, there you are locked up with your immediate family and there's no escape. So it, it maybe... For a lot of people, including myself, it kind of evolves the relationship because you're stuck there together. And it's hard for the children, uh, um, my child and, and other children. I understand that it's a bit different in Sweden, but here, there, you know, even people are afraid even to bring their child over to play. So Carrie has been almost, almost all alone for a month without hardly ever playing with other children, no school. It's so unnatural. Uh, since when have children in this world grown up alone? Although it is, it is the trend, regardless of coronavirus. So that, that's, that's been kind of hard, but I've become his playmate, um, which I'm, I'm treasuring because I know how fast they grow up. Um, and, you know, I think I actually had coronavirus um, a month ago. I didn't get very sick. I had a little tiny bit of shortness of breath, and I think I felt kind of a uh, tiny bit feverish for half a day. Um, Stella was a lot sicker, but not that ill. Uh, but that was right after I'd come back from traveling and stuff. So I don't know. Mm. This is just one of the unknowns. 
Yeah, it would have been nice with one of those, like a test to know that, that you had it and you're done and you can move on. Yeah, and now they're coming up with the antibody tests. I just read in New York, there's apparently 10 times more cases than they had thought, which is, and, and there was a study in Santa Clara that found the same thing, even more, 50 times more. So that is new information for people that, that it's like, hold on, maybe this isn't as deadly as we had thought if there's 10 times more infections, right. that means the death rate is a tenth. Right. So this, I don't think people have really digested that information yet, mm. but this is just the next step into the unknown. Mm. Hmm. All right. Um, well, I'd like to begin the, our conversation with, uh, by borrowing a quote from the author Naomi Klein. Uh, it's a quote that she actually in turn has borrowed from the economist Milton Friedman, and it goes like this. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. End quote. And as Naomi Klein puts it, Milton Friedman was wrong about a lot of things, but he was right about that. So it seems to me that you're precisely in that business, the business of formulating ideas for the next chapter. So I'd love for us to explore and wonder aloud about a few of them. Yeah, I do resonate with that quote. Um, a crisis, real or perceived, there's actually no difference. If a crisis is perceived, then it's real. Because so much of our world is ba based on our common perceptions. Mm. So if everybody thinks that there's a crisis, I mean, like right now, as I was saying before, no one really knows how, I mean, something's happening. People are getting sick. No one knows how dangerous the virus is. But because, <clears throat> because everybody, you know, for at least several months believed it, it is a serious crisis and mm. everything is changing. I, I have the feeling of a grenade where the pin has already been pulled out. Yeah. And we're like, well, everything's normal, you know, but the explosion is still coming yeah. and it is unstoppable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the economic effects, the political effects, the social effects. The, that will dwarf the effects on people's health. Mm. This is still to come. Yeah. And, you know, if this is the only way to change, then I understand why part of me kind of welcomes it. Mm. It might seem heartless, it might seem very privileged because I'm not directly suffering yet, but I'm under no illusion that I am going to pass through this with my security and comfort untouched. Mm. Privileged people, and like I'm not wealthy or anything, you know, in terms of money, but, but I definitely have um, a lot of blessings and good fortune and privilege. Um, but this is, I believe, going to be kind of an equalizer. Um, it is, there is no escape into the walled compounds and gated communities from what is happening now. Right. So, yeah, <clears throat> I, I, because um, I have for my whole life wanted things to change, there's part of me that welcomes this. Mm. <clears throat> and, and to say that, not that you said it, but to say, well, that's just very privileged, you know, to want big change to happen. It's like, 
come on. Mm. The world that we are leaving behind was not working very well for most people. Like, we need something to come and change it. Mm. That doesn't mean the change will be good. Right. It's not like coronavirus is our savior right. that's going to rescue us from the... Or, or doesn't mean that the birthing process won't be painful. Right. Or, uh, right. But, but it's even, yes, that's true. And it's also true that it's not going to automatically make, bring us and birth us into a better world. Right. But I think it gives us the opportunity, at least, yeah. to choose where we had been helpless before. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Let's, let's, I have a, a bunch of things that I want to chat with you about. But uh, before we do that, let's briefly talk about what this virus actually is. Uh, in the media, it's often sort of personified as something evil, something we must fight against and win against. What's your take on that? That's one way to look at it. Uh, if your if your highest value is preventing death, which is actually means postponing death, right? <laughs> and 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 you believe the highest goal of medicine is to prolong life as much as possible, mm. then yeah, this is an enemy. If you have a different view of disease, maybe disease as initiation. If you have a different view of the world of viruses, that they're not only pathogens but they also communicate information from cell to cell, from organism to organism, that they are part of an ecology, inner and outer, mm. then you might look at it in a different way. I don't know what beneficial uh, effects the coronavirus m might have. I mean, this is all speculation, right. but it's something to look for. Um, so I guess I would say I don't know actually, what it is. Mm. And I'm a little bit skeptical of anyone who does right. know. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> Do you think there's a connection between the pandemic and climate change, wildfires, biodiversity loss, ocean pollutions, and so on? Do you think there's... It's kind of a stretch to, to, to say that it's happening or it's worsened because of climate change or biodiversity loss. A lot of people want to take this opportunity and use the COVID-19 epidemic to strengthen their own narrative. Mm. So they see this proves that, you know, whatever they want to prove. Uh, I, I, I'm not really convinced by that. Mm. I think that there, it might be related to um, the vast increase in microwave and millimeter wave radiation that has been bathing the earth with 4G and 5G. Mm. That, um, you know, there's, and this is something like, you know, if you put this, put that topic in your show notes, you could get booted off of YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's, you know, a lot of censorship going on. I don't know that it's related to electromagnetic pollution, uh, but I don't know that it's not. There's a lot of very intriguing evidence, scientific studies that say, you know, the, the danger of wireless isn't, isn't just ionizing radiation. It's not just that it could, you know, knock electrons off your DNA, because that is quite easily disproven. Mm. But that our b bodies are electrical, and, and it has subtle effects. And, and there's quite a lot of research, you know, that is concerning. Um, so, I, I, but I, I hesitate to 
adopt any simplifying narrative. Right, yeah. To say, this is because of the one thing. Right, right, right. Because that's the mindset of find the enemy. Yeah. Including the virus. Oh, that's the one thing. Yeah. And if we could only fix that, everything would be fine. Yeah. But it's showing us, just like quarantine in home might show you things about your relationship that you didn't know before. I mean, this is showing something about our general state of health. Why are people, I mean, most people who die from it have uh, other serious pathologies. Mm. Uh, it's showing us how unhealthy we are as a society uh, and showing us a lot of other things, showing us the, the flaws in the medical system, in the healthcare system. So, yeah, just some random thoughts. Mm. <laughs> All right. Um, I'd love to get into the topic of economy for a bit. I read this amazing quote that really resonated with me the other day. Um, it was from someone who was asked about the presumed financial crisis which will follow the corona pandemic. And she had replied, quote, I've had a personal financial crisis basically my whole life. It's nice now that the rest of the world is finally catching up. End quote. Um, I just love that. <laughs> yeah. So to open up, um, do you think it is possible that the global economy will crash as a result of the corona crisis? Or should I maybe rephrase that saying instead, do you think that the corona crisis will be the triggering factor that undoes an already doomed and unsustainable economic system? I think so. Uh, again, I don't know that 100%. Um, I, I, I do also appreciate the quote that you mentioned that in a way, like a financial crash has already happened for a lot of people. Mm. A lot of people, even before coronavirus, were in pretty desperate straits. And, you know, your, your friend said people that everyone else is catching up to, to her. Uh, that's been happening for a long time as the middle class disappears. Mm. More and more people are learning what it was like to be poor. And fewer and fewer are enjoying affluence and security, especially in the United States, uh, but also in Great Britain and to some extent in the rest of Europe. Um, not so much in China. Uh, it's been kind of the opposite trend in China. Mm. Uh, be that as it may. Yeah. Um, it, it, we're, we're, uh, I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen. But I am watching with some concern the severe disruption of supply chains and production, and even food production. I think that we'll probably have rationing, food shortages, and that is actually not going to necessarily make things much worse for the people who are, all, who are already in poverty and already food insecure. Mm. In fact, it might even make it better for them when access to food is determined you know, by government edict rather than by how much money you have. Right. It might actually be better for a lot of people. Mm. And I think that, because fundamentally, we're not going to run out of food Hunger is not caused by a shortage of food on this earth. It is caused by maldistribution, hmm. uh, especially the maldistribution of money. It's the food system that isn't working, but a lot of food is wasted. Uh, a lot of food right now is, going, is, is being wasted. Farmers are, are having to dump milk and, and bury their produce because the sales channels to restaurants and things hmm. and school cafeterias and so forth have 
evaporated. So I, I don't think that we're going to really face like mass starvation, but it is going to dislocate um, the normal ways that, that people have lived. And any kind of dislocation, any kind of break in the familiar is traumatic mm. and scary. But I don't think that the nature of this crisis is mass death from a lack of food. Uh, but we could have, you know, the, the, what comes before rationing is, is food insecurity, is hyperinflation, mm. is some people can't afford to buy it and they get upset. Mm. They get angry, they exert political pressure, and the government steps in and says, okay, hold on, this, this isn't fair. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's many, many paths into the future right now. And I don't think any of them are what we have been familiar with for the last 70 years. Mm. Are you, do you yourself grow any food or are you like planning for, like are you planting potatoes? Or? I, I have a, we just moved here. I have a garden, but my brother is a farmer. So and when we, ordinarily we spend much of the summer at the farm anyway, mm. helping out. So, you know, how am I going to take care of my garden here if I'm at the farm? And, and <laughs> yeah. So it's a, my situation's a bit unusual. Right. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, if the economy crashes, I'd love to explore with you for a moment what might come to take its place. And here's what I think an economic system that serves people and ecosystem should be able to do. I'll give you an example. My wife runs a dance and yoga studio in the community where we live. It's a popular space and it serves a real function in the community. There's a variety of classes on the weekly schedule and most of them are well attended. This business you would think to be thriving, but that's not the case. The rent for the space is too high and even though many people work there without pay, it's still going out of business. A business model, on the other hand, that seems to do really well is any company that extracts natural resources and turns them into goods. Granted, some of those goods might be necessary, but many are probably not. And the cost for the extraction and the inevitable polluting of the commons is generally heaped onto coming generations. So what kind of an economic system would reverse the financial viability of the above examples so that it would support a local business that meets a real need while penalizing companies that destroy, impoverish, or pollute the natural world. Yeah, so it, it's pretty well known that the activities that are destroying the planet are profitable, as you said, because the costs are not internalized on the balance sheet, but are externalized to future generations or to other people or the ecosystem, other species. They're the ones who are paying the price. Mm. Uh, but the company who is doing the polluting and the extracting is getting the benefits. Mm. Another way to understand it is that, is that they are um, mining the commons, minerals underground, the topsoil that has built up over centuries, the uh, biodiversity, all of these things were not created by human beings. They were gifts of the earth. Mm. So it's kind of unfair to seize some of them and control them and profit off something that should be a gift to all. Mm. So to change the economics around that, one um, 
pretty well-established idea right now is that you, you impose extra costs that are on the balance sheet with, say, pollution taxes or uh, fees to use the commons that make those kinds of activities a lot more expensive. And then in contrast, uh, a, a local yoga studio is not as expensive hmm. compared to, or, or to repair things is not as expensive as to buy a new one. Whereas today, it's often cheaper to buy a new bicycle than to repair your bicycle. Right. Or certainly your, your toaster. Um, and that's different than a couple generations ago when people, there were repair shops and people would repair things. Mm. Why is it cheaper to buy a new one than to repair the old one? It's because the new one is artificially cheap because we're not paying the cost of mining the metals and and smelting the ore and doing all those things. Mm. So really what we're talking about, though, on a deeper level is what our society collectively agrees is valuable. Because we can, through our agreements, shift value, shift money, shift the... Because money is, uh, the, is, is an attachment of meaning, of commonly agreed meaning about value onto something. Mm. So, for example, the government could say, uh, we will pay people to do ecosystem restoration work. Mm. If you're doing anything like that, then you get paid. All of a sudden, that becomes more valuable. Mm. Or we could have carbon taxes or some other taxes on pollution. And all of a sudden, things that reduce carbon become more valuable. It changes the playing field. Uh, again, I can't say that coronavirus is going to automatically establish such an economy. Mm. But it is asking us, what do we hold valuable? Because we're getting, we're getting a little bit of a break from our compulsions, our routines, the behavior that's been enforced by the system. Mm. We've been helpless to resist it. You know, where I live, like, you could not live without driving a car. The infrastructure's not set up. Mm. It's not like, you know, the people here are, are uncaring about the environment, and that's why they drive their cars. It's that if you live here, that's part of life. Mm. It's, it's dictated by the system, and now the system's changing. The system's breaking down. So I don't, I mean, you know, I wrote Sacred Economics. I have various proposals, but I really don't know. Uh, I, I think that we're entering a time of maybe exploring. I would like to see people open to ideas that they had not considered before that had seemed impossible and that were impossible until as Naomi Klein said, until the crisis came. Mm. So one idea that's coming up is universal basic income. If everybody's getting a UBI, then your yoga studio doesn't really have to make much of a profit. Mm. And the volunteers who are working without pay, they're not sacrificing their economic security anymore. So UBI could, could allow a huge flowering of creativity and service and it also has a dark side because if the UBI is compensating for the loss of jobs and the destruction of small businesses, then you're dependent, not anymore dependent on 
the local business. Now you're dependent on the government. Mm. And you're and and so it turns into a situation where you get your pittance every month that you can barely survive on if you're a good little boy. Right. And do exactly as you're told. So it can make people more dependent on the government and more enslaved to it. Mm. Um, so it could go either way, and maybe it will have some of both. Mm. You also, in um, in your latest book, Climate, A New Story, uh, you write that there are also e ecological long-term benefits to universal basic income. Can you maybe expand on that a little bit too? Yeah, it's it's because love of life, love of nature, biophilia, it, it can be called, is innate to human beings. We want to take care of each other. We want to take care of, of, of the world. We want to make the world more beautiful. We want to make it more alive. We want to give of our gifts. And today, a lot of us can't afford to do that. So I, I know people who are Uh, who have been doing guerrilla ecosystem restoration work mm. on in their spare time, on their weekends, they would love to do it more, like restoring uh, watersheds. Uh, because in North America, and this happened in Europe too, the beavers were all exterminated. Mm. And they created wetlands and slowed down the water so that the water could sink in and, and make the stream, the springs flow and, and water the forests. And I mean, The beavers were essential, and and so some people go in there and they uh, either they reintroduce beavers or they they make little check dams to slow the water, you know, and they're taking care mm. of the land. That's the kind of thing that, or one example of the kind of thing that becomes available to people with a universal basic income, or just to take care. It doesn't have to be nature. It's more than just ecology. They can take care of of old people or sick people. Of which there are a lot. In my country, and this is one thing that COVID is demonstrating, we're a pretty sick nation. Hmm. Even compared to a generation ago, the levels of physical disability, autoimmune diseases, addiction, depression, I mean, all of these are uh, have been rising for decades. People are barely hanging in there. We could We could devote our entire nation to taking care of each other, mm. to, to healing the sick, healing the trauma. I mean, the amount of trauma that's gone down, there's so many miserable, uh, angry, hurting people. And instead, you know, we spend $700 billion dollars a year on the war machine. Mm. I mean, I'm, you know, I have my hands up in the air here. Like what Why? It's it's there's so much healing to be done and so much meaningful work to do. We have to put value on that, not just philosophical value, but economic value. We have to support people in doing that work. Universal basic income is one way to do that. Otherwise, if it's if if you're saying, okay, you only get your income if you're doing socially necessary healing work, then you have to have some authority telling you what is and what isn't necessary. Right. And I kind of trust, you know, like authority always leaves something out. In fact, usually it leaves out what is actually the most important things. So I, I would like to be able to trust the people to figure out what actually needs to be done. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Um, 
getting back to macroeconomics, um, many countries, it seems to me, will need to borrow money to get out of the uh, economic standstill resulting from the corona situation. From my research, there's only five countries in the whole world who don't already have an external debt. My country, Sweden, for example, owes about $10,000 per citizen. Uh, and the United States owes 10 times that, about $100,000 for each citizen. So if practically every country is um, already has foreign debt and needs to borrow more money to get out of this crisis, who are they actually borrowing from? Well, they're borrowing from the bondholders. They're borrowing from the wealthy, from, from the, those who have money. I mean, where else can you borrow from? Hmm. It's What's happening now, though, is that they're borrowing from their own central banks, essentially, because more and more the central banks are the ones who are buying the, the sovereign bonds, which basically means... I mean, there's different ways to interpret it, but in a way, they're borrowing from everybody because essentially borrowing from the central bank means that the central bank is printing money. That's how it purchases those bonds. Mm. So it's diluting the money supply. Um, and supposedly, potentially <clears throat> creating inflation, which is actually a way not of borrowing, but of, of taking. Mm. And that might not be a bad thing. If, if you can't service your debts anymore and you still need money, how are you going to do it? You could, there's, the, there's other ways to get the money that you need. One is to receive it as a gift, and the other is to take it by force, if necessary. Mm. That is called revolution. Right. <laughs> that is called wealth dis redistribution. There, it takes many forms. It could take the form of debt resistance, the canceling of debts, mm. the repudiation of debts. So all these countries are so deeply in debt, but what is debt? Debt is just numbers on a ledger. It's numbers in the computer. What happens if you burn the ledger? What happens if you unplug the computer? What happens if society says, nope, we don't agree that these numbers mean what you said it means? Mm. Because what those numbers mean are that one person is a billionaire and everybody else owes them money. I mean, what does a billionaire mean? It means like you have a large bank account, which means that the bank owes you that money. And how does the bank get the money? It, has, it lends out to other people. It's all a pyramid of debt, hmm. basically. Wealth is debt. Money is debt. And it's created through debt in our society. And what can be created can be uncreated. This is not created by God. It was created by human beings. Yeah. We have the power to uncreate it through our agreements. The debt could be wiped out overnight. We could just declare it null and void. Is that the best way to get out of the situation? Not necessarily. It's rather harsh. <laughs> Especially for the people who have the money. Right, which could be like your grandmother with her life savings. Right. I mean, that's... You know, that's money that the bank goes to her. could be your pension fund. Mm. So there's probably a better way to do it than a universal blanket jubilee. Uh, but it's the right idea. Mm. We, nothing is going to change if we maintain the current structure of wealth. And there are many ways to change that. 
that the neoliberal way is simply to grow the economy so fast that the poor become more able to pay their debts <laughs> and the rich get to stay rich. But that level of growth is not possible, especially in the time of coronavirus. But it was already becoming impossible mm. because of ecological and technological limitations. Mm. Mm. I actually, <clears throat> I only recently found out how money is actually created, that is created by a bank when somebody takes a loan And not only does it get created out of thin air, it's also now suddenly interest-bearing, meaning that the amount owed back is greater than the amount created. I think a child would tell you that this is nothing less than magic. But what would you call it? Yeah, it's magic. Yeah. Yeah. Magic is, is the use of symbols to change reality. Mm. And that's what money is. You know, you... you You manipulate these symbols and a bridge is built. And without those symbols, without those magical talismans, you cannot do it. Hmm. But if you have a lot of this magical power, you can make almost anything happen in the world. Hmm. It is it is magic. Yeah, I could probably say something else about that. Right, so as you said, money is created as interest-bearing debt. Um, by banks, uh, and more and more by the central bank. Mm. It's not necessar necessarily a loan, like a business loan or a consumer loan, but it is the purchase of bonds, mm. uh, corporate bonds, government bonds especially, that, as you say, come with interest. Interestingly, and so if it comes with interest, then we're in scarcity, because there's always more debt than money, and in order to keep up, we have to grow the economy. Right. Interestingly, Uh, interest rates have been falling and falling and falling in a decades-long secular trend to the point where they are, um, in some cases, negative. When interest rates go negative, that fundamentally changes the uh, nature of money and debt. Because with negative interest, no longer can you get richer and richer merely by owning It encourages money to circulate. And instead of wealth concentrating in fewer and fewer hands, with negative interest, the possibility exists. Like your, your loans are worth less and less over time. Mm. Uh, you know, like, like if you are in debt, your debt diminishes over time <laughs> instead of increasing forever and requiring you to devote more and more of your life to debt service mm. as an individual or as a nation. So far, the interest rates haven't gone deep enough into negative territory to really make that happen. And again, there's a very a, a big conversation. Uh, and it's, you know, Austrian economists, economists and people, uh, libertarians, think that negative interest is just a terrible idea uh, that only an idiot would support. But it, But... I'm not going to go into all those details, uh, but I just want to say that the issue is much more complex mm. than they give credit for. Mm. So, again, it's about, yeah, money is magic. It's created through symbol. Symbols gain their power through the story that they rest in, the agreements, the perceptions, the field of consciousness that they rest in. And when that changes, 
we can create different forms of magic that change reality in a different way. The magic that we call money organizes the world in the image of its underlying mythology, the separate self, endless growth, uh, the conquest of nature. Mm. That was the bedrock upon which our current financial system was built and our whole economic system. If that bedrock changes, then the magical instrument we call money will have very different effects. If it's built on an understanding of ecology and interconnection and a value of community and relationship, then the magical system, the symbolic system we create, will have different effects. Mm. We can kind of design those into it. Hmm. Nice. Um, a lot of work is being done globally to give nature legal rights. We've seen, seen examples being implemented in places like New Zealand, India, and Ecuador, for example. And organizations like End Ecoside are working globally to spread this idea. What do you think about the idea of giving rivers, forests, and mountains personhood and legal protection? Well, I think it's a step in the right direction. And it embodies a very important and true perception that these are not just resources or things, uh, but they are beings. So how do we express that knowledge and how do we translate it into, you know, beyond just a philosophy, but into our actual systems? Legal personhood is a way to do that. And there are people who criticize it for various reasons. Um, you know, it's giving a kind of a human personhood, an anthropocized personhood to them, mm. and in a way reducing their rights to those that a person can have. Like there is, there's criticism of it, but I think it, that it is the correct impulse and a, a good step, a good practical step toward uh, ensuring and protecting these sacred beings. Hmm. Um, it seems the COVID pandemic has effectively brought vast sectors of the world-destroying machine we call business as usual to an abrupt halt, which must be a relief for every life form on Earth, except maybe for a few of the humans. We don't know how long this window of ecological relief will remain open. So how can we use this space? What are some changes we can make now that maybe seemed impossible just a few weeks ago? Well, I mean, the changes, you know, are obvious and have always been obvious. To consume less, to stop traveling for frivolous reasons, uh, to simplify life, uh, to spend less of our time in consumption and acquisition and more in service to humans and nature, et cetera, et cetera. Like, this, this is quite obvious. Uh, but the question is, how? And, and from where are the destructive choices coming? We can't just say, okay, we're going to do something different if the conditions of the choice haven't changed. The conditions of the choice include our basic needs and what we value in life. And the crisis is showing a lot of people that, that maybe the way that they had been living wasn't really meeting their needs. 
maybe we don't want to go back to some parts of normal. And maybe other parts of normal we do want to go back to and reclaim. Hmm. For example, the normal of uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of, of speech, uh, which has been limited a lot, hmm. you know, um, uh, the freedom to, to walk in the park with a friend right. in many places. Like, there's a lot of things we might want to reclaim of the old normal, but there's a lot of things like, yeah, you know, for me, for example, I am so relieved not to have to travel now. Mm. <laughs> I had been wanting to stop traveling. Not, I mean, honestly, it wasn't because of ecological reasons. It's because of the wear and tear in my body and my family life. And now I have, and it was, but it was hard to say no because, you know, these beautiful invitations and I'm telling myself, well, I'm really doing really good work. And, you know, I had all these, all these reasons to, to say yes. And it was this inner battle. And now it's kind of a relief to be like, oh, sorry, you know, can't do it. <laughs> and perhaps in a few months, the opportunity will arise that I can do it again. But now I have new information. Mm. Do I really want to? And we could ask, do we really want to spend so much of our collective energy and money on the things that we did? Like, do we really need all of this tourism, uh, uh, luxury cruises? Um, is that really important? Mm. When, when, and here's another thing that's coming up, when so many people are vulnerable and so many people are suffering. Mm. That's coronavirus has, I think, expanded the the reach of people's compassion. And maybe coming out of it, that will become more part of how we make our choices. So these obvious things will become obvious. It's just like, it's just like, imagine like you're an alcoholic. It's not that you don't know what changes you should make. It's not that you don't know that drinking is, is, you know, destroying your health and your family and your and your financial well-being. Mm. You know it. You know exactly, but you feel helpless mm. to do anything about it until there's an intervention that exposes, why were you really drinking? Mm. What are the unmet needs? The unmet need for self-acceptance, maybe. The unmet need for healing buried traumas, et cetera, et cetera. And when those are met, when you have these revelations, when you receive some of this healing, then the things that have always been obvious become accessible. Hmm. That is, and not automatic. You can still go back to drinking again. You can relapse again. That could happen to our society too. But we have a chance. Hmm. We've received this intervention. Hmm. Beautiful. I want to go to back to your book, Climate, A New Story, um, where right towards the end, you list 18 policies and changes necessary to implement over the next couple of decades to move towards a living world. I thought I'd just read them um, and let you add, remove, or expand as you see fit. So as I read the list, feel free to jump in whenever, or if you prefer, you can wait till the end and say something about it. Okay. Um, and also just a warning, I'm going to trim down your wording a little bit, and I hope you don't mind. Yeah. And anyone who's listening who wants to read the full thing, you can flip to page 272 of the book Climate, A New Story. 
which, by the way, is also available for free on your on your website, right? Yeah, uh, all my books are available for for free, or with yeah. even better with a donation. It's voluntary, but yeah, yeah. I do appreciate the donations yeah. also. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, we're not excluding anybody from reading the the fullness of what I'm what I've butchered because they couldn't afford to buy the book. All right, so here we go. Um, number one, promote land regeneration as a major new category of philanthropy. Connect young farmers to land and help farms transition to regenerative, practice, regenerative practices. Number two, institute a global moratorium on logging, mining, drilling, and development of all remaining primary forests, wetlands, and other ecosystems. Number three, expand the land protected in wildlife reserves. Number four, establish new ocean marine reserves. No, establish new ocean marine reserves and expand existing ones. Number five, in the rest of the oceans, establish strict bans on drift nets and bottom trawling. Number six, ban disposable plastic bags for retail purchases. Face out plastic beverage containers in favor of a refillable bottle infrastructure. Number seven, reconstitute the World Bank to serve ecological healing rather than development. Rather than development. Number eight, promote reforestation projects globally. Number nine, Establish an eco-corps to address youth unemployment and restore ecological health by planting trees, building water retention, water retention features on public land, deconstructing dams, etc. <clears throat> Number 10. Change building codes, sanitation codes and zoning regulations to allow higher density development, tiny homes, composting toilets, etc. Number 11, reintroduce and protect keystone species such as in North America, beavers, wolves, and cougars. Number 12, carry out water restoration projects worldwide through water retention landscapes, regenerative grazing and horticulture, and the strategic removal of dams, canals, and levees. Number 13, relocalize the food system and promote economic localization. Number 14, institute a negative interest financial system. Number 15, apply pollution taxes to make companies internalize the social and ecological costs of toxic waste, radioactive waste, air pollution and water pollution. Number 16, impose a deposit system for most manufacturers good, manufactured goods so that manufacturers have an incentive to create durable, repairable products with easily recoverable materials. Number 17, turn away from pesticides. And there's a long explanation for that one, but I'll, I'm just reading the headlines here. And then my favorite, number eight, they're all my favorites, but this one is powerful. Number 18, demilitarize society. So that's yeah. a hell of a to-do list. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a long list. In a way, the last one is the most important one. Because as long as we're fighting each other, 
nothing will change. Mm. Or as long as in we're a spending... War, the most, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's a matter of priorities. In a war, the highest priority that you sacrifice everything to is victory. Mm. Uh, if, if the enemy is at the gates, then nothing else matters. Mm. That mentality puts healing of every kind in second place. Mm. We need to put it in first place. Otherwise, we're not going to have the will to make these changes. You have to value it. We create the world that we in, in accordance with our values. So we're going to have to stop wanting, looking for enemies and seeking victory over them. Mm. And instead, look to relationships and seek to enrich and strengthen the relationships. Mm. So that's kind of an overarching one. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other things I could have put in the list. Like, everything's connected. Um, so as long as we have, a, you know, this gigantic military machine, then no real healing will happen. The same thing with the prison population. Mm. Like, the same thing with with uh, racial injustice, you know. So I could have added a lot of things to there. Um, if I went through the list again, I'd probably, you know, and if I was limited to 18, you know, like, I think it's really important to... Um, when, when, when we're talking about protecting and restoring ecosystems, that includes the humans who live in intimate relationship with those places. Mm. So, if, so it, like you cannot protect the rainforest without also protecting the indigenous people, the people who are indigenous to that rainforest. Right. They're part of it too. Mm. Uh, so, you know, but, but I made that list with kind of an ecological you know, like framed kind of in environmentalist language. Right. Uh, and that makes it a bit limited. But I would say that that overall, the highest two priorities are the first two, to, uh, or the, in the first set, which is to protect any pristine ecosystems that still exist. Mm. Like absolute no, no more mining, no more drilling, no more logging in the Amazon and the Congo and whatever, like no more development that drains pristine mangrove swamps. Uh, like that has to absolutely stop immediately. But here's the protest from from um, the president of the Congo saying, if we lose all those, that income from the mining, what are we, how are we going to support our people? Right. So, so it is hypocritical to stop all of that, but continue to ask Congo to service their foreign debt. Mm. which they can only do by selling off these natural resources. Mm. That would be hypocritical. So yeah, that uh, that you can't just change that without changing. I mean, this is another keystone piece without um, debt cancellation mm. on a mass level uh, and and internationally. And then to, this is what we were talking about before, to I, I would say to pay Congo to keep the minerals in the ground and to pay Ecuador to keep the oil on the ground, hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm not saying like to stop all drilling, mining, et cetera, et cetera, everywhere all at once. What, what I'm saying is in any untouched area, that stops. Hmm. Now, you know, there's... And then we, over time, then maybe we can shrink existing operations too. Uh, 
mm. as we transition to a more, uh, uh, you know, to, to the, uh, like that one piece about um, durable, repairable goods, you know, we don't need so many raw materials. Mm. Like, why do we keep having to get more and more cobalt when it's already embodied in our electronics? Like, we could recover that, mm. you know, if we put our minds to it. Humans are amazing. We can do anything. And if Apple didn't keep coming out with new types of cables for to connect our devices. Yeah, for example, right? And you can't blame them, you know? It's like, wow, this is going to work great. Mm. It's just not a high priority, nor is there an, a financial incentive to do it any differently. Mm. You can't blame Apple. You know, if, if, if your solution is to, is to take down all of the bad people and the bad companies because they're bad and, and we should do it better, that's not going to work. You have to change the playing field. You have to change the incentives mm. to try to take down the bad, like to say Apple's bad. That's the same mentality of conquest. That's the mentality of war. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't have any understanding about their conditions. To give a little bit of love to Apple right here, I'm talking to you through a, a, an Apple interface right this moment. So yeah, there we go. And they <laughs> and and you know, like Steve Jobs exemplified what I was just saying. Humans are amazing. If we can envision it and agree on it, we can do anything. Mm. So let's envision a more beautiful, ecologically healed, socially just world. Mm and do anything. We can do that. Mm. Like we could have, we don't need to use all these, all these, mine all these resources. If it's important to us not to, we can figure out a way. We can figure out other sources of energy. Energy is actually a lot easier than raw materials. You know, like, I mean, that's, there's a new Michael Moore film out that, that, um, is you know shocking a lot of environmentalists saying boy you know these solar panels and wind turbines and biofuels are ecologically disastrous mm -hmm. and people are like whoa have you all of a sudden become a trumpite you know because <laughs> you're harming our narrative and this is what i was saying in in climate a new story that it is such a mistake to hitch the wagon of environmentalism to the horse of global warming of carbon reductionistically conceived global warming mm. Because then we do terrible things that <clears throat> don't seem terrible to us because we're not we're only looking through the lens of carbon dioxide. Mm. Anyway, um, and that's why that list includes so much, like there's almost nothing about carbon dioxide in that list. Right. Because it's coming from a living earth perspective that says really ecological health depends on the health of the organs of a living being. Mm. And those are the forests, the wetlands the whales, the soil, mm. the water, um, and the people, even. We're an organ, too. Mm. Nice. Thank you so much, Charles. We I know that we're getting a little bit towards the end of the, the, our time slot here. I have a few listeners' questions. Would you mind? Yeah, uh, maybe yeah sure. Two or three? Let's do it. All right. This one comes from Adele Lascalea. She asks, how can we think of a new educational paradigm where the child is the community it inhabits and vice versa, in an ecosystem that sustains it. Yeah. I'll just start by saying this is a beautiful question. And if I had too, too thorough an answer, that would be a disappointment. Uh, because that question is going to motivate us to explore so many possibilities. So maybe I'll just say why I like the question. Mm. Um, 
because school as we know it today is very dissociated from community and from place. The curriculum is usually devised by education boards in the capital, you know, or even internationally. Um, the people are not learning about the people in their community at school. They're taken away from their community. And it happens in these classrooms that could be anywhere. A classroom in Stockholm is pretty much the same as a classroom in Mumbai. Hmm. They have nothing to do with the place where they are. Hmm. It is only in the last 150 years that children have been separated out from society and put in these miniature prisons. I mean, in my country, they've become more and more like prisons. Hmm. Uh, that's a whole other topic, but um, we need to rethink school from the bottom up. Even, you know, should children even go to school? <laughs> A lot of people now in the U.S. are starting to homeschool because of coronavirus. Mm. And they're like, wow, my kids are happy now. But what about the social, the social aspects of going to school and hang, meet, meeting your friends? Yeah. And... Did your teacher ever say, you are not here to socialize? <laughs> Probably. I mean, what if, yeah, right. The solution obviously isn't that kids are alone in their single family boxes. Like they should be um, woven into a community and and be able to to play. Mm. I mean, play is one thing that has diminished over a generation and um, become a matter of interacting with screens mm. rather than with other children. Right. So I would, like, what I would say is there should be a lot less school than there is now, and children should be socializing more mm. and being more involved in adult life, which is kind of hard if a lot of adult life is happening on screens. Right. So you can't actually look at the educational question without looking at a broader social question. Mm. And this is another thing that coronavirus is bringing up because it is making us be on screens even more mm. yeah. by showing us our destination in the extreme like, it's like, okay, guys, here's where we're going right. if things continue. Mm. This is not a new trend that started with coronavirus. Do we really want to go there? Mm. Do you want to spend all your day on freaking Zoom calls, mm. you know, <laughs> looking at people with a screen around their head? Yeah. Like, do we want that? Is it worth it mm. to prevent a certain tiny percentage of deaths to insulate ourselves in boxes? Mm. That's a question that's coming up. And <clears throat> if we say, yes, it's worth it, we're going to live indoors all the time, we're going to do all of our work on screens, uh, and we're going to depend on this automated industrial machine uh, to interact with materiality, then there's no alternative but not only the way school was, but even to make it, you know, the virtual classroom. Mm. Um even more separate from place and from community. Mm. That's the, the, the trend line. But we don't have to go there. So I love that question. And I would say, yeah, let's really, let's really embrace the values that are under, underneath that question. Mm. And how do we connect childhood to community and to place? Mm. Yeah. 
I think it's kind of um, when you said should kids even go to school. That's sort of it's it's kind of a radical question to to ask. But I think somewhere in the ascent of humanity, you wrote. I guess you've done research on it that we remember only about five percent of what we're taught in school as adults. So is it all wasted? Oh yeah, you remember nothing. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, almost nothing. You remember only what you only what you need in your daily life, basically. Right. But all those years of when did that king die and and when was Napoleon? Yeah. Yeah. Every all of that. Yeah, Matthias. What's the? Can you tell me the law of sines the, or the law of cosines? Do you remember that formula? Uh, no. Try another one. No. <laughs> Maybe <I'll, laughs> if you, keep, you learned it though, right? I don't know. I, I, I'm not. Did un- you take trigonometry in school? Yeah, but cosine, maybe I'm just not understanding properly right now. <laughs> Do you even know what a cosine, uh, right, okay, maybe it's the language barrier. Yeah, I'm hoping so, because I'm like drawing a complete yeah. blank here. <laughs> but I know what I'm going to go like ser- look for when I'm done with this call. <laughs> I studied mathematics. I even studied mathematics in university. Okay. You know, I majored in mathematics and philosophy. Mm. I don't remember the law of cosines. Mm. I probably could derive it if I need, if I really wanted to, but I would probably <laughs> just look it up somewhere. But I never use it. Right. You know, like uh, most of what I learned in school, I don't use. Mm. You could say maybe I learned how to learn. Right, right. But for me, it was like, I mean, really what school originated as was uh, training for scholars. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing. But only a couple percent of the population is ever going to be a scholar. Mm. So in the Industrial Revolution, school took on another purpose. Uh, before that, you know, there was a one-room schoolhouse, but people only went to school for a couple months a year. Mm. After the harvest was in and before the planting began, you would go to school. Um, and, but but um, aside from that, you know, the school as we know it began during the Industrial Revolution, and it was not to train scholars, it was to train obedience. Mm. It was to train people to, to do as they're told, even when it's a trivial, boring task Mm. for external rewards. That's what it was. Mm. It was to create a mass society. And that's, you know, schools were designed like factories. Mm. Standardized inputs, standardized outputs, standardized curricula, standardized tests. That was the purpose of school. And people were upset about it. There were riots in a lot of cities when the truant officers came to take away your children. You know, because they were removed from from daily life, from from work. Um, not that children should work twelve hour days in a coal mine, but you know, children were part of life. Right. So anyway, mm. that, that's a bit of what I wrote about in the ascent of humanity. Right. All right. Let's see if we have time for one or two more of the listeners' questions. Um, Donna Campbell writes: How do we get the billionaires out of the driving seat? I'm not really sure. I mean, I was going to say, I'm not really sure if the billionaires are in the driving seat. <laughs> it's like, um, I mean, the system creates billionaires, creates opportunities for, for people to become billionaires. But the billionaires, just like the politicians, are, I call them functionaries. They play the role that is assigned to them by the system. Mm. And if they do anything that much different, then they very quickly stop being a billionaire and somebody else becomes a billionaire. Mm. 
by doing the job description of being very, very good at extraction and exploitation. Mm. So the question, it's, it's a false target to target the billionaires and to think that if we could remove them or change them, then the system would be different. Mm. The system necessitates and creates billionaires. Mm. That doesn't mean that they don't have a role to play in healing society. Every person in every station of life has a role and has courageous choices to make, including the billionaires. But for me, it's more a question of, of how do we change the system so that we don't produce such an inequality of wealth. Mm. I was speaking the other day uh, on a call with uh, somebody who is very high up in the Obama administration and still is in these power circles. Mm. And he said, there's nobody driving the bus. You know, if, if, it, if only there was someone driving the bus and we could take him off and put a better bus driver on, mm. that would be a different story. Mm. There's nobody driving the bus. That's beautiful and scary at the same time. Yes. All right, let's see if we have time for one more. Um, Eric Grace is asking, well, this is a personal question for you, some kind of. Uh, what are some of the impacts of your work in the world on others that you've seen and felt? What are you proud of? <sighs> yeah. Gosh, I mean, sometimes I don't know if my work has had any impact on the world. Sometimes, though, pe people write to me, I mean, on a personal level, people you know, often tell me that it's um, transformed their lives or helped them uh, trust themselves or something like that. I, I get very moving messages. Mm. Um, but the cynical part of me is like, oh, you know, they would have come to that anyway. And, mm. you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that, um, I don't know. Uh, it does feel nice to receive those messages, you know? Mm. It makes me think that, oh yeah, maybe maybe it's worth doing. <laughs> um, and, this, and then also sometimes sometimes I get messages from like environmentalists or people working in social change movements who describe how, like for example, how the um, living earth uh, paradigm that I put in the climate book has affected their organization's priorities. Mm. So I think I have added a little bit to the uh, shift toward regeneration uh, from clean energy. Mm. You know, that's that's a very practical thing I'm advocating for, for, for the environmental movement to devote a lot more attention to soil, forests, and water. Um, and not so much to so-called clean energy. Mm. Um, so like there are practical things like that, but um, I cannot prove to you or even to myself that I've had an, a bigger impact on the world than, you know, my um, humble friends who are doing humble work mm. that's never celebrated or recognized. Mm. I think maybe the biggest impact on the world that I've had is through my relationship with my children. And that impact may not be felt for 500 years right. <laughs> on a macro level. Mm. But um, yeah, I don't think 
and this is not me being like humble or modest here, you know, it's just, I really don't think that I deserve more celebration than, than anybody really. Um, Do you feel that you're doing what you're called to be? Like, are you, is your compass needle, like, are you following your inner compass? Um, yeah, sometimes I have that feeling that, uh, job well done, this is what I was supposed to be doing and I've, and I did it. Mm. And then sometimes I have the feeling like, oh, I'm sick of this. Mm. This isn't working. <laughs> and then, okay, is that voice coming from a, a learned inadequacy from, you know, childhood experiences? Or is that my soul telling me it's time to move on? Mm. Like, these are not simple questions. Right. So I, I would just say that I have just as much, you know, inner conversation as anybody does. Mm. Um, I'm as uncertain as probably you or anybody else is. Mm. And then so in some moments, it's clear. Mm. <laughs> um, when circumstances call strongly, you know, like if you're child is lost or if somebody's bleeding and you have to do something, you know, there's just no doubt, you know? Yeah. And yeah, the world is bleeding. The world is lost. But in this case, it's not so clear what to do. So we all try this, we try that, we look for the results. We try to distinguish what is genuine feedback from the world and what are we filtering through our own need to feel important and worthy. Like, this is part of our own healing. And I'm just in much, as much in the thick of it as anybody else. Mm. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, just a, a quick last one, follow-up from Eric Grace. Um, what inspires you? Now, I know that you're going to say the films and parts of Campfire Stories, but apart from that. Yeah, apart from the, that goes without saying. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I mean, what inspires me is, I, I just referenced them before, it's the humble people who are doing beautiful work with no thought of reward without ever being celebrated or thanked. The people working, you know, my ex-wife's husband, for example, working in, a, working in juvenile detention centers. Mm. You know, no one is saying that he's changing the world, but those teenagers are maybe experiencing genuine respect from an adult for the first time ever. Like, who knows what the effect on those kids, children, and grandchildren will be mm. from this man's work. Mm. Or I'm thinking of, you know, daycare teachers taking care of two- and three-year-olds or one-year-olds in these daycares where the parents are at work. The parents at work may be doing important things in the world, and this minimum-wage daycare worker who could just kind of go through the motions and do her job, but instead she's really giving love to these kids. Mm. And they grow up and they don't even remember her. But something has been implanted in them mm. through that experience, through this woman giving more love than she has to to get paid. Those are the people that inspire me. Mm. I am so grateful for them uh, because they show me how to be human. Mm. That's, that's, that's where I get my inspiration. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Charles Eisenstein, for taking the time to be on this call. 
It was my pleasure. And uh, I hope I get to see you at some point, even though I don't really travel, even before this corona pandemic, and you're not really traveling now. Yeah. So I guess we'll have to uh, yeah. see each other through a screen every now and then. Yes, I would like that. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thanks, Matthias. Bye-bye. Bye. Gently, kindly, softly remember one self at a time that being here is all there is. That being here is the gift we have longed for. That existence is its own reward. Existence is its own reward and enlightenment is. It is not something to become. For we are beings of light. We are beings of light. And our eyes are already open. We need only remember to see as the children see. And rest. Rest. Rest like the bears. Rest on the forest floor. Dreaming the droplets of silver water that we are. Perfect and complete, forever unique in this spray of stars and laughter, this spray of stars and laughter, this great spray of stars and laughter that is our eternal home. The music in this episode was from the poet Ben Bushill. The track is titled As If We Remember. Check out more of Ben Bushill's poetry at Spotify or at benbushill.com. There's actually also a film about Ben Bushill available at Campfire Stories. It's called One Poem to Catch It All. Check it out at campfire-stories.org. See you there.